you more like him. And that's what we're going to find out here. And you'll see what a blessing that is. So the first part of my sermon, I'm just going to talk about the context a little bit. If you've been here in the last few weeks, you're going to have a good piece of that. If you're, you haven't been following along, this will be really helpful for you guys to get acclimated to Genesis 44. Uh, then I'm going to read through a little exegesis, going verse by verse through some of these verses, so you have a clear picture of what's happened. After that, i tell you what I told you, and I'll tell you what it means. That's how I'm going to do it today. So let's go ahead. Uh, what's been going on here since about Genesis 34? We have the sons of Jacob, you know, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the great fathers of the faith in the Old Testament. And the Old Testament's basically a history of redemption, leading us to understand and appreciate the New Testament better, to know God, to know the ways of God. So here we are, uh, chapter 34 of Genesis, just 10 chapters ago. All the brothers, presumably except Joseph and Benjamin, get revenge on some people. They trick them and slay them. They take the wives and the children. That's pretty low. That's not what a man of God should be about, clearly. It's corrupt, deceitful, murderous. Chapter 35, Reuben, the oldest son, he tries to take his father's place and sleeps with his father's concubine. 37, the brothers, the 10 older brothers, they plot to kill, then just leave Joseph in a pit. And they decide in the end, out of Judah's own words, it was his idea to sell Joseph, their youngest brother, their father's favorite, into slavery. These are not good men. Everything we know about them in in this period of their life is bad. It's very corrupt, very bad. What about Joseph? Well, Joseph was the favored son. He had dreams from God that his brothers would bow down to him. They didn't like that. That's why they got rid of him. We don't have any record of him doing anything majorly wrong. We only have records of him being faithful. You see, whenever they sold him to be a a slave, he got sent to Egypt and was in Potiphar's house. Through good and righteous living, he was indeed blessed there, and he quickly rose in the ranks. So much so that Potiphar's wife said, I want that. What do you think, Joseph? And he said, no, we can't do that. Potiphar's given me everything but you. And he did the righteous thing and left. She accused him of rape. He got sent to prison, became a servant to prisoners. When he was tested, his blessing was becoming righteous and good and actually preserved Potiphar's house. But it wasn't a worldly blessing of riches and health. It's not always that. That's a a secondary point. God primarily wants to bless you by making you more like him when he tests you. So after being a servant in a prison, he eventually gets to interpret uh, Pharaoh's dream. He tells Pharaoh, you're going to have seven years of plenty and then seven years of famine. And right here in Genesis 44, the seven years of famine have already started. Pharaoh had placed Joseph in charge, second only to Pharaoh. So here is fortune is rising again, directed by our Lord for all of our goods. Because he was found to be faithful when he was tested, now God gave him even more to be faithful with. 
Problem is, what about his brothers? What have they been up to in the intervening 20 years? What have they been like? Well, we know very little about that meantime for them except for this. Every time we see Jacob at the beginning of that 20 years and at the end of it, he brings up these sort of words. And this is what he tells them one time very recently, and I think the previous chapter. Whenever they need to go back to Egypt, he says a couple of these phrases. I shall go down to Sheol to see my son in mourning. That's what he said 20 years ago. And then just recently he told them, speaking to, ben, speaking to Judah and all the brothers, he said, My son, Benjamin, shall not go down with you, for your brother is dead, and he is the only one left. If harm should happen to come to him on the journey that you are to make, you will bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. Now I want to tell you a couple things about that. Sheol is what they understood as the realm of the dead, or simply the grave. So what Jacob was telling, speaking to Judah, and the brothers were gathered around. So just put yourself in the place of Judah, and they need to go back to Egypt. They need to bring Benjamin to prove they weren't spies. Put yourself in the place of Judah. Hey, Father, we got to go back. And he says, Judah, my son Benjamin shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead. Judah says, well, I'm your son too. You weren't included. You see, because of all their past sins, Jacob was looking at him and wouldn't recognize him as his son to his face. You see, the favored wife, Rachel, she had two sons, and they did seem to follow after the Lord in all their things, and all their ways. So that was a very difficult slap in the face. Jacob was very hung up on the loss of his favored son, Joseph. When it says back in 37 that Jacob tore his clothes, that's a sign not I stubbed my toe, not I'm upset. It's, it's saying my life is over. I'm torn in half. I can't go on. He would constantly remind his son so much that later when Judah in front of Joseph, he says these words again, repeating them again. I think he's heard them many times over these past 20 years. they had, All the brothers, they never let the secret go. They never told their father what they did. And it had begun to fester, and the guilt grew. And their father, in his mourning, in his righteous mourning, inadvertently, but God ordained, remind them of their failure. Remind them of their past sin. And God was going to use that in this testing we're going to read about here in Genesis 44. So all the brothers, they're in their late 30s to late 40s. They're right in that age group. They're, very, they're grouped very closely together. They're in the prime of their life, yet they're, they're facing a famine in the land. They're heading down to Egypt. They have no idea that they ever are seeing or speaking to their brother in this whole chapter. Just keep that in mind. But it's beginning to weigh on them because what their father has said, they are thinking about what happened 20 years ago. He keeps bringing it up. So, let's jump back into the scripture here. Genesis 44. Then he commanded the steward of his house, that is Joseph speaking, fill the men's sacks with food, and as much as they can carry, put each man's money in the mouth of his sack, and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest, with his money for the grain. And the steward Joseph told him. 
Joseph gave him some extra instructions that we don't see here and we'll see come out in just a few more verses. So let's pay attention to some of the things that he says. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. They had gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, Up, follow after the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, This is really key. Why have you repaid evil for good? This theme is going to come out in the next few chapters. You see, it is sinful man's natural way to do evil things. But he says, why have you repaid evil for good? The next few chapters, you'll get to see what God does with our evil. But I don't want to steal a thunder for the next week, so let's go on. It is not from this that my Lord drinks, and by this that he practices divination. You have done evil in doing this. So they're focused on this cup. It was a sign of his power and prestige, this Lord of the Egyptians, Joseph. And they had just eaten dinner with him the night before. They saw this cup. They knew it was a sign. Remember, they've been accused of being spies. And now they've taken his cup. That sounds something like a spy would do, not an innocent man. They know they didn't do it. They know they're being set up. So, verse 6, when he overtook them, he spoke to them these words. And they said to him, why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money we found in the mouths of our sacks we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then can we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? So these, these older brothers, they're headed back and they get caught. Hey, you've got something of ours. The stewards come out in force. He's not by himself. He has armed guards with him. He has the power. And I assume, since Judah speaks for them the rest of the chapter that he's speaking here to, Judah says, wait a second, we're innocent. I know we are. We haven't done anything wrong. We brought back the money that we thought you inadvertently gave us before. Something's changed in the brothers. They're not the same men. Judah assumes their innocence. He pleads with them. Look at the way he argues. Let's look at that. Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die, and we will all be your Lord's servants. He is so sure of it, he said, we'll all be servants. Now, that's a really interesting thing. There are two types of servants in Egypt at this time. One would be a a servant that you could possibly even enter into of your own agreement. Maybe you lost some bad debts and things didn't go right and you had to do it. But you still had rights. You still could own property and your kids would not be slaves. There was a second type of servant in Egypt at this time. This type was usually an enemy of the state. Maybe you're your nation rebelled against Egypt and they took you over in war and they took you as a slave. The slave did not have rights. Your kids would become slaves. You could not own property. Your life as a free person would be over. They have been accused of being spies. That second level, that slavery type servant is what's on the line here. So whenever he says that, when Judah speaks to him and says, we didn't do that. If you find any of us, we'll all be slaves. He is so sure that they're changed men, that they're different. Am I reading into this? Let's find out. Verses 9 and 10. 
Whichever your servants have found with it shall die, and we shall also be my Lord's servants. And the steward said, Let it be as you say, he who is found with it shall be my servant, and the rest be innocent. You see, the servant has the steward has special uh, knowledge that he has to test them on one specific thing. Remember those twenty years ago, what they messed up on. They were jealous of their brother Joseph. And to get their own privilege and position secured, they got rid of their brother. So now they're going to be tested on what happens to Benjamin. What is going to go on with them? Are they going to seek their own benefit and release? Are they going to work things out to help Benjamin and look for his good? Let's continue. Verse 11, Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack. And as he searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest, the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. I want you to put yourself again in Judah's place. You're one of the older brothers. They start searching your sacks. They, they open them up. They see the money there. You guys are looking around. You probably can't communicate real well. I bet you're going get, to get a little hit in the back of the head if you, you start moving around. But you're kneeling there. And you're wondering what's going on. I was so sure of our innocence, yet the money's back, just like it was last time. But you know it's going to get worse this time because there's a special cup of the Lord of Egypt, and you've been accused of taking it. And you see that there's the money there that you guys didn't steal. So imagine you're Judah. Your, your older brothers have already been passed over. They had the, the money, but not the cup. You feel relieved when it's not you farther down, and then, then you begin to get a sinking feeling. Because you're starting to put some things together. What your dad's been reminding of you for 20 years. The thing you've been guilty of that you've never admitted. It's starting to look like your little brother Benjamin. Because you've been accused of it. And the guy's been right. There's the money in the sacks. You were lined up. Oldest to youngest. So it was building. It was building in all of you. You're seeing someone's going to have this cup. Benjamin didn't have anything to do with selling Joseph to slavery. The innocent one is going to pay on a cosmic level for the wrong that Judah and all the brothers were thinking that we did. That's what's playing out right here. So that's why verse 13, that they then tore their clothes, loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. Remember the last time that someone tore their clothes? They said, my life is as good as over. It was Jacob, a learning of the death of the apparent death of Joseph. These are changed men. Something has happened in their heart that they're not who they used to be. Who they used to be was, it wasn't me. I don't have to face enslavement in Egypt. I'm going to be fine. That's who they used to be. They would have been fine with that. The same thing that they were jealous of Joseph, the favored son of Jacob, their father, that's who was going to get the cup. The favored son of the father now, Benjamin. Joseph is testing him and told his steward exactly what to do to find out if they were the same men. So they would already see a difference. Let's continue on to see if they've actually changed completely or it's just them being smart. Verse 14. 
Then Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, and he was still there. They fell before him to the ground. That's the fulfillment of prophecy for a second time, by the way. Joseph said to them, What deed is this you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? And Judah said, What shall we say? What shall we speak to my Lord? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Let me stop there for a second. He is now speaking for all the brothers. and He is saying that we are guilty. Not of this thing we know we're not guilty of. We both know it's a false charge. Judah is saying to this Lord of Egypt. He doesn't know he's speaking to Joseph. He's saying we are guilty and we are war- our life is worthless. We deserve death. He doesn't know that Joseph is there and knows what he's talking about. But he's admitting real guilt, not just this false charge. So all the brothers, they all let him speak. They let him speak for them. That's what he says. Let's go down to verse 18. Then Judah went up to him, Joseph, and said, O my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ear, and let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. Now again, the old Judah would have said, well, since we know who it was, let us go on our merry way. But he does something very different. He intercedes. We've already clearly established here between the steward and the brothers that whoever had the cup, that would be the person that would be enslaved and the others would go free. He doesn't have to speak here. He could let well enough be alone and he could go on scot-free. But he's being tested here and now he's passing the test. He's interceding. He's humbling himself, taking a risk, being charged as a spy too, saying, Please don't do this to my brother. Please. Uh, Brandon, are you reading into it? Or are you kind of making up some theology here? Let's go on a little bit further. Verse 27. Then your servant, my father, said to us. So there again, I want you to picture yourself as Judah. You are laying to your brother Joseph. You don't know it's your brother. You see this Lord of Egypt. And you're saying what Jacob said to you just a short while ago. And what he said for all these years. You know that my wife bore me two sons. That stings to say that out loud, to admit that your father doesn't even recognize you. One left me, and I said, surely he has been torn to pieces, and I have never seen him since. If you take this one from me also, speaking of Benjamin, and harm happens to him, you will bring my gray hairs down in evil to Sheol to the grave. He's telling this Lord of Egypt, he's connecting it, what happened all those years ago. He's saying, this this can't happen. Something's got to give. Joseph's not bending. He sits there impassive. So Judah takes takes it a step farther. Let's read verse 33. Now, therefore... Please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers. What's Judah doing here? 
He's saying, Lord of Egypt, even though he was the one found with the cup, I can't bear that he would be a slave. I am his older brother. I'm entrusted with him. He's not guilty of anything. We've all admitted that we're guilty and we don't, we don't deserve to have a life. We deserve death. Let me take Benjamin's place and become your slave. Judah is giving up his life for the benefit of his brother. He has changed so much that he resembles Jesus more than he resembles the old Judah. God tests us in order to bless us. How is that a blessing? Well, the legacy of the brothers is not that they were corrupt, murdering, backstabbing, betraying brothers, but that they are the 12 tribes of Israel. Their name is great. If you were one of the 12 tribes, you said, yes, my father was Judah. He stood for his brother. When you act in that same faith under testing and trials, people will see it and they will ask you, what is this about you? Why would you do that? Blessing to others. Brandon, are you just pulling out this blessing bit out of the sky? It seems to be there when you say it, but I'm just not convinced. Okay, let's look at James chapter 1. I'm glad you asked that. James chapter 1, right after Hebrews, if you want to turn there. It's sometimes fun to turn there. You get right to the revelation you don't mean to. But James chapter 1 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. God tests us to bless us. He did it with Judah, and he does it in your life too. Whatever you're facing that's a trial, that's a test, God is using it to bless you, to make you like him. Still not 100% sure, he spells it out in just different words. Verse 12, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. That is an amazing promise. That's an amazing blessing. So it's not a health and wealth thing that he's blessing you with. He's blessing you with eternal life, with living and walking in doing the will of God, joining Christ in his work. Is that not what we recited earlier? Let's look at that again. Philippians chapter 2. If you want to turn there, you may. I won't be here too long. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation with the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, that is, if you think Christ is the Lord, if that makes any sense to you, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Now, 
The first time you read Philippians chapter 2, you knew it was referring to Jesus as we're about to read those key verses again. When I first read from Genesis, I saw Joshua here. Man, he, he saved his brothers and all their posterity, a great man of faith. But as I studied it, I saw Judah in these verses too. And we're invited to take part in that same level of counting others as more significant than yourselves, to being a blessing for them. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others, having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Jesus Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, this brings us right around to Advent. God the Father sent Christ to die in our place, to bring about our redemption. And we're called to live that same way, to live sacrificially, to count others as more significant to ourselves. If you believe in Christ, you should see yourself in here. Just as Joseph was like Christ, so Judah was like Christ. So you're invited to be like Christ. So if you count yourself as a Christian, if you say he is my Lord and Savior, be blessed when you face those trials. Put others first. Love in this way. Empty yourself. You will see an impact. The people around you will have a blessed life because of you. If you do not yet know Christ as your Savior, you can have this redemption too. It's not free, but it's already been paid for by Christ on the cross. He came into the world to become a human, emptying himself. And he puts all of us first. He died for my sins and he died for your sins. This redemption that Judah felt that he took hold of and understood now is offered to you. Will you embrace Christ? I encourage you to consider that this day. Ask God to send his Holy Spirit to show you the truth. And that's really the question. Will I join God in his work, in this great commission? Or will I sit back and be quiet and just watch as things pass me by? Or will I be found faithful in these tests? You will face tests and trials in this life. The question is, how will you answer it? I hope and I pray for all of us that we could be as faithful as Joshua, just a few centuries after Joseph and Judah. This is what he said. Choose you this day who you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Amen. Please stand.